You are listening to the Lima Community Church Podcast. The following was recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio. Well, good morning. Is it good to be in the house of God this morning? Yeah, amen. Well, I'm wondering if in your devotional lives... You've ever committed to reading an entire book of the Bible or a large section of scripture over a set period of time, you know, maybe committing to reading a chapter a day until you've read the entire book. If you have, you know that it can be a really exciting exercise, committing to following the narrative and all of the energy that's poured into gleaning all of the nuance of what it is that the writer is trying to convey. You sit down with all the excitement of what it is that scripture may reveal to you today. What deep insights and profound lessons will manifest as you interact with the pages of the divine narrative. You crack the cover in the energized anticipation of where the story may take you and the action through which God may be revealing himself. Which of our characters may be losing an ear? Who's getting eaten by a she-bear? Who might be the lucky recipient of a miracle that might restore vision, exercise demons, or even be resurrected? And then the inevitable finally happens. That moment that you had been dreading but knew that you couldn't avoid forever, you've just realized that today's reading is an entire chapter, 30 mind-numbing verses of genealogy. All of the excitement with which you came to your devotions is completely drained as you consider your next steps very carefully. You begin to think to yourself, well... Maybe there's a special VIP lounge in heaven for those who have read every last one of those obscure names and places. Or on the contrary, how much extra time do I add in purgatory by skipping over those seemingly random lists of names or obscure laws? And might it just be worth it? And maybe right now, You're starting to ask yourself, Wes, what in the world does this have to do with our story in Nehemiah? The fact of the matter is, I don't know how to tell you delicately, so I'm just going to say it. Today we're in Nehemiah chapter 3, and we have an obscure list to read. But as with all things, context is everything. And I think that this chapter actually has a lot for for us to unpack if we might spend some time with it. So just by way of making sure that we're all up to our speed in our narrative of Nehemiah, we're going to start with a little recap. So Jonathan shared with us a couple weeks ago about how Israel, through its own disobedience, found itself in exile. And while in exile, Jerusalem and its temple and its walls are destroyed. And when Nehemiah gets word of this, he's grieved and he's moved to do something about the destruction of the holy city, of his city. And last week, Doug shared with us about, how, uh, about Nehemiah's inspection of the ruins of Jerusalem, how he looks upon the destruction and ultimately catalyzes and inspires the community of Jews to rebuild what had been lost. Now, this week in our reading, we actually get to the action 
the building and the repairing of the city and its walls. If the story of Nehemiah were a movie, then this chapter would be the epic training montage. It's Rocky Balboa training through the streets of Philadelphia and ascending the steps of the Philadelphia Museum of Art, mindset on accomplishing the task at hand. And if that doesn't get you excited for today's scripture reading, I don't know what will. So if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn with us to Nehemiah chapter 3. We're going to start with verse 1. Otherwise, you can follow along on the screen. So this is Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the high priest Eliashib set to work with his fellow priests and rebuilt the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set up its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hananel. And the men of Jericho built next to him, and next to them Zakur, son of Imri, built. The sons of Hasena built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set up its doors, its bolts and its bars. Next to them, Merimoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, made repairs. And next to them, Zadok, son of Banerate, made repairs. And next to them, the Tekoites made repairs. And at this point, you're probably starting to see a pattern here, and you may even be wondering to yourselves, my gosh, is this guy going to read all 32 verses of the cataloging of the rebuilding of the wall to which I would say, I hope you don't have lunch plans. <laughs> Something to keep in mind when reading passages like these that consist of genealogies or sets of ritual laws, or in this case, a list of who is responsible for fortifying particular sections of the wall, is that as mundane as it may seem to us, that is, readers in the 21st century, thousands of years removed from the actual events, and from the original intended audience, is that these passages were important enough to those compiling the scriptures that the writers found them to be absolutely essential to the message of the narrative. And if these passages, regardless of how mundane they may seem to us after a cursory reading, were that important to the original writers that were inspired by the Holy Spirit, then they may just warrant a closer look on our part. The power of scripture is twofold, right? It's an account of God's character as he has interacted with his people throughout history. That is, it's one of the primary ways in which God has revealed himself to us throughout history. But it's also the manner in which God continues to reveal himself to us now. In reading the story of Nehemiah, not only do we become witnesses to God's faithfulness to the people of Israel in 450 BC, we also believe that it's possible that through this story, God is still teaching us how it is that we ought to live. So I think a helpful place to begin is in asking the question, what is it that God might be speaking to us through this 2,500-year-old project record? So at this point in the narrative of Israel's history, Israel is a people in exile. They are scattered and they are removed from their homeland. And we are reminded that Israel is less of a geographical place and more of a people, a mindset, a faith. They have been subjected to rulers that are not their own, under political paradigms that are not their own, living in a land that is not their own. 
For years after the, the destruction of the temple in the city walls, they had no central place of worship. And because of that, they lacked an organized sense of what it was to be the established and the embodied kingdom of God. Israel is a scattered people which I think is what makes this passage so significant. By the time that we arrive at the events of Nehemiah, Israel has been in exile for over a century. For over a hundred years, the people of Israel have been scattered throughout the region. Geographically, they are in different towns and cities, which undoubtedly means that over the span of their exile, they have been influenced by worldviews and perspectives economies, religions, and the governments of the place in which they've been forced to resettle. So when you think about it, the events that are unfolding here in chapter 3 are no small miracle. The people of Israel have been scattered for generations. The people that are coming back to this place aren't the same people that were exiled from it. Rather, they are the great-grandchildren and the great-great-grandchildren of the people that were exiled. And yet... Through their commitment to the common mission, they come back to rebuild this thing that is greater than the sum of its parts. I want to read another section of this text in Nehemiah. This is chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. In it, Nehemiah writes, Next to them, Uzziel, son of Hariah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And next to them, Raphiah, son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. And the deeper that you get into this passage, the more that you see something beautiful kind of starting to take shape. In this passage that we just read, we find that working side by side are a perfumer, that is, one who makes perfumes, a goldsmith, and one of the ruling class families of Jerusalem. And this is a pattern that continues to develop the more that you read. You find that the walls of Jerusalem are not being repaired and rebuilt by hired hands and construction crews. Rather, they're being built by bakers, fishermen, Shepherds, military men, priests, musicians. And I think that this is one of the most significant parts of the whole story. It would seem as though the community of Israel so strongly sensed a personal responsibility to the community and the community's mission that things like class, social standing, or vocation made no difference when it came time to accomplish this thing that they've been called to. And I find it very interesting that when it came time to get to work, Nehemiah didn't commission the construction workers or merely those who were trained or whose vocation it was to build a repair. Nehemiah commissions the entire community to help restore their home. So integral was the wall to the identity of the people of Israel that the entire community felt the sense of urgency and responsibility to make it what it was to be. It's at this point that I think it might be helpful to take a step back out of the story and ask the question, what does this seemingly obscure passage in Nehemiah have to speak to us today? How might the events of Jerusalem in the 5th century BC be guiding us in the church in the 21st century? In short, how is this passage guiding the people of God today? 
I think that there might actually be quite a few similarities to the situation of the people of Israel and the point in history in which we currently find ourselves. I don't know as we're technically an exiled people, but I wonder if we haven't all the same found ourselves to be a scattered people, or at the very least, a divided people. For a season, Israel had no temple no house of worship. And because of that, there was a very real sense in which something core to their identity was fundamentally missing. This was the place in which they would come to commune with God and with, and, and, and with one another. The place in which they would offer sacrifice to God. The place in which the community came to be shaped by the word and the very presence of God. And yet, it had been destroyed by way of exile, Israel came to know the violence and the destruction of their homes, their community, their temple, their place of worship. The fact of the matter is that over the last year, we, like Israel, have become a scattered people. And in our own ways, we've experienced violence and destruction There have been times in which we have not been gathered as a community. Times in which we have not been united in spirit. Times in which we have not cared for our relationships in the ways that we ought to have. And whether this has been done to us or whether it's the destruction of our own making, this is the violence that we look upon. And as we aim to come back together, I think the critical question that, like Israel, we must be asking is what is it that we are building together? What is it that we're building together? What is the thing that we aim towards that can only come about through the participation of the entire community? So we're going to shift gears here a little bit, and we're going to look at a passage from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church in Corinth. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 21. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members and yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. I wonder if the crisis of our times isn't so much that the world is going to hell in a handbasket in some fatalistic sense, 
or that the powers of evil are prevailing upon the ill-equipped and too timid powers of good. I wonder if the crisis of our times is that we've been content to say to one another, I have no need of you. It truly has been an unprecedented season, and because of that, we've made ourselves quite at home with the notion of revoking our commitments. It's been easy to break promises and to not be faithful to the things that we once thought of as essential for life, namely our relationships to one another. And I think we've all felt the consequences of this in some way. Maybe family gatherings seem a little more tense, right? Maybe we've distanced ourselves from friends that are a little too vocal with their opinions that maybe we just don't agree with. But it's possible that our lack of faithfulness to one another has caused some form of destruction to our families and to our community. Paul goes on to talk about the weaker members of the body and even the less honorable members of the body. But Paul doesn't tell us that we ought to ostracize those members or to stop caring for those members or to let those members find a new body that is a little more in line with their particular ideology or their opinions, Paul tells us that God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. And this is a, an incredibly countercultural worldview. It seems as though there's been a lot of talk about unity and the desire for unity within our culture at this particular moment in history. The problem is that when you begin to explore the depths of this particular brand of unity, it tends to look a lot more like narcissism than the unity and spirit that Paul is talking about. This kind of unity says that you have a place here so long as you believe what we believe. You have a place here so long as you function the way that we function. But as we just read in the Corinthians passage, this isn't the way that the body functions. We need eyes that can perceive the road ahead. We need feet that can take us there. We need ears that are attentive to the world around us. It would seem as though the body is at its healthiest when all of its different parts are present and active. It's not lost on me that sitting in this room are a group of people that likely have very different opinions when it comes to government or economy or social injustice or masks or even what it means to be a follower of Christ. But it's possible that in spite of our differences, we still need each other. I think that you could even argue that because of our differences, we need each other. What I think Paul is communicating and we see exhibited in this passage in Nehemiah is that our primary task as members of the body is not trying to discern who is right and who is wrong, but rather our primary task is to be an assembled body navigating and experiencing life together. Our function as a body 
is to be the movement of God's love in the world, united by his spirit. In his letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul writes, I therefore beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. The miracle of the body, and this is true of our personal bodies as well as the members that make up the body of this worshiping community, is that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. It's one thing to technically have all of the pieces that ought to constitute life, but once the Spirit of God is breathed into it, it becomes almost mystically alive. A body that is a community that is moved by the unifying spirit of God, has the capacity to change the landscape of the very kingdom of God. So then let's return to our original question. What is it that we're building together? And my proposal would be that we are building a community of people that is so committed and so faithful to one another, so covenanted to being the embodiment of Christ, that we could never possibly utter the words, I have no need of you. The thing that we're building together is not so unlike a marriage a community of people that vows that in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, we will love, honor, comfort, and keep one another. The thing that we're building establishes that I need you. And it's possible that you might just need me. We have to be willing to subject ourselves to one another with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bonds of peace. Which is a lovely sentiment, but you may be asking yourselves, okay, practically speaking, what does this mean for me? Well, I think it means we have to be willing to marry something. It means that we have to be willing to relearn what it is to be a people that are committed and faithful to one another. It means that there's a small group starting up called Gospel Dive that will be fostering community and growth through the study of God's word. It means that choir meets every Thursday and needs not only your voices, but the spirit that you'll bring to that community. It means that soon a garden will be emerging from the ground across the street and it will need a faithful community of people that are committed to the land and to one another. It means that every Tuesday evening, a group of young people gather for young adult ministries in the Axis and need your life-giving spirit. And it's possible that you might just need them. There's no shortage of opportunities with which to be united in spirit. But we have to recognize that unity 
does not come about in isolation. We need one another. And we need to be building something together. If you've heard truth this morning, would you say amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you in a posture of confession. We come to you confessing that there have been times over the course of this last year where we have not been attentive to the things that you have called us to. There have been times in which we have not been attentive to one another, to our relationships, to the body, to the community, to the gathering. As we confessed in song this morning, we recognize that we are a people who are in need. We come confessing that we need you that we need one another, that we need this body. Would you give us new hearts? Would you give us hearts that are willing to look upon the violence and the destruction and be moved to do something, to build something together? God, we need you. We love you. We thank you for this body. We thank you for the gift of life. We pray this all in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, this morning as you go from this place, um, maybe you find yourselves needing to pray or confess or to even put yourselves on the altar. We'd like to be able to ride the space to, to do that. You may go in peace this morning. Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, visit limacommunitychurch.com.